Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor here at the South China Morning Post and producer for the podcasts we put out each week. Now, I've stepped in once or twice over the last couple of years for different episodes we've put out. So with the departure of Chad Bray to London, I've put myself in the hot seat as we head into what is shaping up to be a most interesting end to the year. Now, apologies if you become used to the smooth North Carolina cadence of Chad or the velvet Irish tones of Finbar Birmingham. My visible diphthong may be jarring, but I do hope Hong Kong has civilised my accent somewhat over the years. Now, as ever, we publish this podcast each Friday, hoping not to be gazumped by events in the geopolitical arena. This morning, when I spoke with our North American Bureau Chief, Rob Delaney, he previewed the speeches of China's US Ambassador, Qin Gang and Henry Kissinger at a business dinner that was going on at the time. Now, the report on that from Owen Churchill is up on scmp.com, and it looks like there were some fairly spicy after-dinner comments served up. You might want to look that up after listening to this episode. You're also going to hear from Rob Delaney talking about this upcoming democracy summit that's coming to Washington and how it's proving to be another opportunity for Taiwan to achieve some legitimacy in the international arena. And on this subject of the self-ruled island that Beijing considers a breakaway province, the debate and discussion about that has escalated into riots. Riots that have occurred some 5,500 kilometres to the southeast of Taipei in Honiara, the capital of the Solomon Islands. Now, if you don't know where I'm talking about, just imagine a map and visualise where Papua New Guinea is just to the north of Australia. The Solomon Islands are just to the east of Papua New Guinea. Our Asia desk correspondent, Maria Xiao, is going to update us on how a decision to switch diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to mainland China has led not just to riots which targeted both the parliament of Honiara and Chinese businesses in its Chinatown, but it's brought into focus a quiet struggle over economic aid and assistance from both Beijing and Washington. Let's get to it. Rob Delaney is our North American Bureau Chief. He's based in Washington. Rob, hello. Hi there, Jared. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Uh, Let's just start briefly with what's happening at the U.S. State Department in the past 24 hours. You've had the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, meeting with her counterpart from the European Union and uh, give him his full title. Stefano Sonino is the European External Action Service Secretary General. What do we know of the agenda or what's come of this? Well, they talked about, uh, I mean, no, no surprises, I would say. They, they talked about uh, ongoing, quote, ongoing human rights abuses and violations in China, including this systemic repression of ethnic and religious minorities in Xinjiang and Tibet, uh, and, uh, of course, the erosion of autonomy and democracy in Hong Kong. So it's really the, the same kind of notes that we always hear. So really the significance here is not so much 
the the points they were making. There was nothing surprising there. It's really just the fact that they are continuing with this uh, with this formal dialogue that was that was started actually under the Trump administration. So it's it's just further evidence that the Biden administration wants to continue with a lot with many of these hardline policies that were started under the previous administration. So, uh, so in addition to human rights in Hong Kong, uh, Xinjiang and Tibet, they also, uh, they, they said, quote, expressed strong concern over China's problematic and unilateral actions in the South and East China seas and the Taiwan Strait that undermine peace and security in the region. So, you know, it could go, Everyone who follows this could sort of finish that sentence. And and when we, of course, when we talk about undermining peace and security in the region, th- that's the, pretty much the same language that Beijing uses also. So it's it's just this sort of hitting back and forth, talking right past each other on these issues. Um, but again, uh, yes, they, the, the, the fact that they are doing these, uh, the, the continuing this forum, uh, doing it in a very... Um, a uh, high level fashion uh, is is just sort of underscores the I guess we could say the success really that the that the Biden administration has had in kind of keeping that united front up against China. And of course, they're, they're meeting again sometime today, and we'll see any news of that on SNP.com. But this leads me to the the bigger uh, diplomatic event, this thing, this initiative being called the Summit for Democracy. Rob, what is the Summit for Democracy? What is this and, and who's invited? Uh, well, there are uh, 111, I guess we should say, places. That I think are... there's 110 countries and one uh, island described as a breakaway province by Beijing. Exactly. And that uh, particular area, uh, that particular self-ruled islands, the, the fact that that they are on the uh, the invite list and, uh, as far as we know, plan to participate, of course, has angered China. Uh, and, and and so uh, and, and, and so it goes. We'll just this this is yet another front on which uh, the Biden administration is charging ahead with uh, with with policies and measures uh, and and um, and 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 acts that really uh, 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 sort of exacerbate a lot of the tensions between the two countries. It's interesting that these you know 110 countries and Taiwan, this seems to be an opportunity for Taiwan to again try and get another level of legitimacy in the international arena. Yeah, they've they've been scoring a lot in that in that respect recently because we've seen it's not only their participation in in this summit, but also as as we've seen this uh, through reporting from uh, uh, from. Finbar Birmingham in Brussels. The word Taiwan is used for its rep office in Lithuania. And there there does seem to be a degree of support within the EU uh, for for what uh, Lithuania is doing. So yeah, so this coming back to the democracy summit, you know, I think what we have to keep in mind here is that no one is actually showing up in Washington. This is this is a, a fully virtual summit. 
So, uh, so I guess you can only imagine how big that zoom screen is going to have to be in order to have any kind of meaningful, uh, uh, interaction. I'm trying to imagine 111 people on a zoom screen and trying to get people to either mute or turn their microphones on. <laughs> right. Or, or I don't know, maybe they'll have a bunch of screens and, uh, they'll have someone directing Biden's attention to whichever one has the, uh, features, the, the head of state or, or official who's talking. I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting. They have said though, that this, this is the virtual one and they intend for the, the next one next year to actually be in person. Will that actually happen? We, we don't know. Will it be all 110 representatives? That's, you know, we, we don't know that either. The, the, the thing is we don't even, we're not even sure yet what's going to come out of the summit that's happening next week. The, the, the idea for this summit of course came up, uh, before a, a number of uh, of incidents that really damaged the U.S. Uh, the U.S. in terms of its it, its profile. It's in, in one of them being like, for example, the the pullout from Afghanistan, where you know after twenty years the effort was to support democracy there, and then as we, we saw what happened in the pullout, it was within a matter of days it had pretty much all fallen apart. And there's all sorts of infighting. We can see how how toxic the, the 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 political discourse has become in the U.S. itself. So, uh, of course, China and and Russia and, and other countries that have uh, adversarial relationships with the U.S. now are sort of having a field day with this. So, really, what's happening is the <clears throat> excuse me the. Biden administration is really under a lot of pressure now to show that this is not simply 110 people sitting down at a Zoom call just just for a photo shoot or or for some sort of statement that they can release. But there really has to be some kind of deliverable. And so when, when you look at the agenda for uh, for the summit, it's it's all about they talk about three key themes, defending against author, authoritarianism. Uh, is one addressing and fighting corruption? Number two, number three, promoting respect for human rights. These are all very broad topics. So there's now more pressure to sort of come up with some kind of deliverable. And and what we understand is that there will be uh, some sort of that, that deliverable. The, the Biden administration would like that deliverable to be something in the form of agreements <coughs> among these these countries to allow in. Uh, more uh, NGOs with with human rights on their agendas. Uh, they are also a commitment among these countries to, uh, to to put themselves to participate more in these international bodies, such as like for example the UN uh, uh, Commission on uh, Human Rights, to sort of act as more of a check, a, a counterbalance to the participation of countries like uh, Russia. Uh, Belarus uh, on 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 these areas. So so really, what I, I think what we need to watch out for is whether or not we will see these kind of specific commitments come up in in the in the summit. And while the diplomats are busy in Washington, Rob, uh, yesterday uh, we had Biden's top Asia advisor Kurt Campbell in Australia uh, addressing the Lowy Institute and declaring China's economic sanctions what essentially was a one sided trade war against Australia has essentially failed. 
Yes. So he's he's really talking up Australia's resolve in this uh, in in this trade war that has been that ongoing trade war with China, uh, really saying that uh, it's it's backfiring on, on Beijing. And so to, to an extent, it depends on your perspective uh, about whether that's actually happening, because uh, there are also reports showing that as the value of many of these commodities, whether it's coal, barley, uh, wine, uh, lobster, the, the value of those exports from out of Australia have fallen because of the, uh, the, the tariffs that Beijing slapped on them. There's been uh, an, an nearly equal rise in exports of these same products from the U.S., from uh, from New Zealand, uh, from and and from uh, uh, from Canada. So it, there, there's a question mark around to what extent is is Australia really winning this this trade war? Uh, so so that's I, I think that's still. Despite what Kurt Campbell is saying, I think there's still a lot of debate around whether or not it's it's actually winning. Who will who will prevail in the long run? I mean, we do know that 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 trade action that that Beijing has taken against Australia has dramatically uh, it, it, uh, boosted the prices of coal. So that has sort of indirectly helped Australia to some extent in that. As China tries to source coal, as much coal as it can possibly get from other jurisdictions, well, Australia is coming in and filling in the gap from uh, from these other countries that are now finding it more difficult to buy because China is buying from other places. So it's a very mixed and muddled picture right now. But I think we could probably accurately say that the the trade war that China launched has not been the stunning success or has not had the kind of uh, very clear outcome that that Beijing has had kind of established at the start. I'll just pivot briefly to, to something that's making news domestically in Australia that's made very little ripples on the international front there, Rob, and that is the Australian Defence Minister Peter Dutton has been beating his chest and really ramping up the rhetoric about war with China over Taiwan. Um, like I say, it's made zero news internationally, but I wanted to ask you, can you contrast that with the temperature of discussion in Washington? What's the, the temperature of discussion right now in Washington, in the circles you move in, about you know, military moves uh, around Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait and mainland China? Honestly, it it is not the top story in the U.S. when it comes to what's going on in the Taiwan Strait, and I, I think that's just a result of the the U.S. is facing a, uh, a, a they need to raise the debt ceiling, right? So we may have a government shutdown coming up in, in a matter of days. There has been uh, a lot of infighting around the uh, the the legislation, the the social spending legislation that the Biden administration has been pushing. And so there's there's really and uh, and of course on top of that we've got the emergence of the the Omicron uh, variants now is emerging in the U.S. So 
when you talk about what's top of mind for many Americans, these things are are really capturing the attention uh, more than uh, these issues around uh, military movements and China's sort of uh, progress in its in in its weapons, whether it's hypersonic weapons or uh, whether it's the expansion of its nuclear program or or anything like that. So uh, this just isn't the kind of thing that captures the, the the general American public until there's come there's some kind of actual confrontation, some kind of shot fired somewhere, which, you know, none of us want to see. But uh, but I mean, until and, you know, unless something like that happens, it's, it's not really a, a burning subject here in the U.S., well, just before we uh, we finish here, I wanted to just bring back the subject of sport, you know, that great geopolitical arena. You know, we've had the WTA officially pull all its events from from China. And upon that has been renewed discussion about, you know, uh, putting pressure on the commercial sponsors of the Beijing Olympics and this discussion of a diplomatic boycott. It was kind of floated possibly as being considered by Joe Biden. Is there any discussion or word that this might be on the agenda for Joe Biden, a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics? The administration continues to dodge that question. So that has, uh, you know, the press have been kind of firing that question out. Of course, since the WTA made their announcement about pulling out of China, of course, that that gave us another round of yet another round of questions about what the Biden administration is going to do about the Olympics. And so far, we haven't heard anything. It's just they're they're dodging the question. I, I don't really see how, in light of the situation with Peng Shui, in light of the emergence of Omicron, I, I can't imagine that, that we would see anyone from the Biden administration showing up in Beijing for the Olympics. So I, I find it interesting that they still that they're still not answering this question directly. It's interesting. I think some of the Chinese state media made a similar point by saying, well, no one's coming anyway from those departments. So why bother about this? Can I ask you just to throw forward what is coming up on the agenda? What should we watch for from your bureau? Uh, well, of course, there's a democracy summit. So uh, we've got uh, uh, you know, my colleague, Mark Monnier. He's he's all over that. We'll be, uh, we'll, we'll be following it as it approaches and, of course, on the day. At the moment, we've got uh, that, uh, the elder statesman, Henry Kissinger. He is delivering some remarks at a U.S.-China Business Council event that's ongoing now. Uh, at the same event, we've got the, uh, the, the Chinese uh, ambassador to the U.S., Qin Gang. He is going to be making remarks also. And um, our uh, correspondent, uh, Owen Churchill, is, uh, is covering that. So uh, we'll, it's yet to be seen what's coming out from that, but uh, do stay tuned for that. Rob, there's a lot coming up as ever. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jared. Take care. Now, just before we hear from our Asia Desk reporter, Maria Xiao, a quick reminder that each Friday we publish a newsletter called The Listening Post. It keeps you up to date with what's happening in our other podcasts, such as Inside China, what we're working on for future episodes, and also gives you our reviews of podcasts from around the world that we're listening to. Last week's edition featured the first ever photo of the extended SCMP podcast team, and this week, you'll see what it takes to record a socially distanced interview in the office of Dr. Ben Cowling, the prominent epidemiologist working at the School of Public Health here in Hong Kong. 
I'll put a link to the newsletter in the description of this podcast and hope you sign up for the listening post, which comes out every Friday night, Hong Kong time. But now, let's head to the Solomon Islands and hear more about how it's become a flashpoint for political persuasion over Taiwan. Maria Xiao is a correspondent with our Asia desk. Maria, hello and welcome. Thanks for having me, Jared. It's a delight speaking to you. Maria, can you unpack for us how a decision made by the Solomon Islands government in 2019 about recognising China over Taiwan has led to violent riots and what looks a bit like martial law two years later here in 2021? Well, from what we understand, um, when the diplomatic search from Taiwan to mainland China was made in 2019, it was apparently due to the enormous pressure that was placed on the Solomon Islands by Beijing um, to drop its diplomatic recognition of Taipei, because um, as most of us are where over the years um, mainland China has been trying to win over countries that have diplomatic ties with um, Taiwan. And Taipei is, of course, on the losing side as it does not have as much international clout or global influence as compared to mainland China. And of course, Taiwan does not have as deep pockets as mainland China, which explains why Taiwan currently only has 15 former diplomatic partners around the world. So in order to get the Solomon Islands to recognize mainland China over Taiwan, um, Beijing has thrown in really seriously a wide array of economic incentives using loans, using investments, um, especially as Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is, of course, um, Beijing's ambitious global infrastructure and connectivity project. And on the part of the Solomon Islands, its leaders were more than happy to make this diplomatic switch, um, given the economic incentives and given the desire of its leaders to catch up um, economically with its neighbouring countries, such as Papua New Guinea. Um, but since then, and we're talking about, well, it's been about two years down the road, um, the switch in diplomatic recognition has not gone down well with the ordinary people. And there are many reasons for that. Um, but one of the key reasons is that the economic benefits of um, the Solomon Islands establishing ties with mainland China does not seem to have trickled down to the ordinary people. Um, this is mainly due to the highly corrupted nature of the government and its politicians, uh, who are known to have siphoned off public funds for their own personal gains, uh, with many using these funds to buy real estate and basically to enrich themselves. Uh, but of course, having said that, I have to say that this situation is not unique to the Solomon Islands because when mainland China offers aid and investments to countries with poor governance, um, it does not seriously really make it a point to scrutinize where this money has gone to or where the elites have chosen to spend the money. And of course, there is little supervision, let alone accountability. So really, that's the simple explanation as to why the violence erupted last week, uh, whereby protesters not only stormed parliament in a bid to topple the prime minister, they also defied a lockdown. They set fire to government buildings, businesses, and even the police station. So what we have seen is that um, Australian troops have been sent to this um, Pacific Island country to help uh, stop the unrest and to restore peace and stability um, to the country. And of course, the Australian troops, it's not their first time there. They've been there in 2002, 2004, uh, 2006, and they were stationed there until 2013. And I guess what makes it interesting now is that with the Australian government's posturing against mainland China uh, and, and its support of Taiwan, it's now being accused of taking mainland China's side in enforcing peace in Honiara. 
Well, um, what we've seen is that after the violence started, uh, it became clear that the local police were not able to cope. And this like sort of prompted authorities to look for assistance um, from among friends and neighbours. And the requests were made to both Papua New Guinea and Australia. Um, and according to Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, um, Australia has received uh, the request for assistance under a security treaty, which the two countries signed in 2017. And so under this um, bilateral security treaty, um, Australian police, defence and other civilian personnel, um, they can be quickly deployed to the Solomon Islands um, in the event of an emergency. So this treaty, which basically replaces uh, the earlier agreement known as the Regional Assistance Mission to Solomon Islands or RAMSI, means that Australian troops will be in Solomon Islands for perhaps weeks, we don't know how many, uh, where their primary responsibility is um, basically to assist law enforcement authorities in securing and protecting critical infrastructure. But even before that, um, as you rightly pointed out, Australian troops have been um, deployed to the Solomon Islands, mainly to tackle tensions and unrest. Um, and these had mainly to do with the long-simmering um, inter-island rivalries uh, between the capital Honiara and Malaita, which led um, to the deployment of Australian-led um, peace, uh, peacekeeping forces from 2003 to 2017. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because in the reports we hear the disputes between uh, provinces is the cause of this unrest. But, you know, if we drill down to it, this is this Malaita we refer to is a neighbouring island. So theoretically it's people from a neighbouring island of Malaita flown in to Honiara and this unrest has come about. There's the burning down of Chinatown, etc. How has this tiny island, Malaita, become a focus for US-China geopolitics? Interesting question, because um, as we've seen, uh, many of the protesters were from uh, Malaita province, which basically has a long history of disputes with the central government. And basically, people from Malaita were opposed to the diplomatic switch um, to formally recognise China over Taiwan. So after this diplomatic switch, um, the Premier of Malaita, uh, well, what, what happened was that he outlawed Chinese businesses in the province. Um, he also called for an independence referendum and he continued to maintain relations with Taiwan, all in defiance of the central government, which is quite astonishing if you think about it. And last year, again, um, in contravention of national law, um, a large shipment of aid arrived in Malaita from Taiwan, which Malaita accepted. Which again, if you think about it, is rather astonishing, given the outright um, defiance, you know, so to speak, against the central government. But apart from Taiwan, uh, Malaita also accepted development aid from the United States. And last year, in 2020, and you must remember, this is after the Solomon Islands had established diplomatic ties with China. The U.S. government apparently went ahead and poured 25 million U.S. dollars into Malaita, which, of course, does not sound like a lot of money. But again, you must remember that Malaita is one of the least developed islands in the South Pacific, where just 3% of its people have electricity in their homes. So 25 million US dollars is not twice, it's not three times, it's not 10 times or even 20 times, but 50 times what the province usually gets every year in terms of foreign aid. Just think about that. So this begs the question, why is the US and why is Taiwan doing it? Is it from the pureness and wholesome goodness of the hearts? Or really, is there more to it? But then according to one of the analysts I've spoken to, the US funding was largely intended for agriculture and environmental projects for five years. Well, yes, but if so, it still begs the question, why are the funds not channeled towards the central government, but to one of its rival provinces? 
but this is something that we really have to think about. This really does seem to echo this kind of battle between Beijing and Washington, if not Canberra, through the South Pacific for, if not hearts and minds, for, for infrastructure and technology. We've seen the, you know, the Australian government pour in a billion dollars to buy a, a cell phone network in order to deny uh, any Chinese company from buying in. What does Taipei, what does the Taipei government get out of this? Why are they pouring support into Malaita? Well, that's a good question, and it really depends on who you ask. Um, according to the Japanese analyst whom I had spoken to, he thinks it is very unlikely that Taiwan wants to play a role or to want to play a major role um, in the riots and violence which happened last week, because, um, as he put it, it is very risky for Taiwan to get involved in what is seen as essentially a very delicate um, diplomatic situation. But Basically, that's not the view from China, because according to the Chinese professor from Renmin University in Beijing, um, whom I've spoken to, the riots were apparently organized by a group of pro-Taiwan elements. And these elements are determined to undermine the one China policy. And what they're doing is aimed at forcing the Solomon Islands to switch recognition from Beijing back to Taipei. So this Chinese professor even described such attempts um, as a sort of a color revolution, which, of course, most of us know is basically used to describe the series of protest movements in the early 2000s um, that took place in the former Soviet republics that were funded by outsiders or foreigners and which subsequently led to the changes of governments and regime. So basically, the Chinese professor is saying that the recent measures taken by the U.S., whether in terms of pushing for a greater U.S. role in the Indo-Pacific or visits by U.S. lawmakers to Taiwan this month, had apparently sent the wrong signals to Taipei, which had in turn... Um, sort of like emboldened pro-Taiwan independence to instigate the riots, so to speak. Maria, we've seen the subsequent response from Beijing uh, to Lithuania uh, engaging with the Taipei government. Uh, what response have you heard or, or seen from Beijing about this situation in the Solomon Islands? Yeah, it depends on who you ask, because on the part of Taiwan, Taipei has, of course, denied it has anything to do with what happened um, in the Solomon Islands last week. And so far, experts have said that Taiwan's aid to the South Pacific Island countries is mainly in agriculture, followed by education. Uh, so what they do is that they distribute fruits and vegetables produced by small farms to generate some sort of goodwill, if you will. Um, but in the case of Malaita, um, I think it is probably only natural for Taipei to want to maintain contact and some sort of linkages, especially since Malaita is the province that opposed the diplomatic switch to China and which still supports Taiwan. So it probably doesn't come as a surprise that Taiwan still wants to continue pouring support into Malaita. And also it is really quite well known that the premier of Malaita, um, Daniel Sudani, has even received um, medical treatment in Taiwan in May this year for a suspected brain tumour. His trip was basically condemned um, by the Solomon Islands government as unauthorised. Maria, can I ask you, what is the situation that we know now in Honiara? The, the Australian soldiers are there, the Fijians, the Papua New Guinean troops, you know, they're there to enforce the peace. What is the situation now? From reports that we've seen, it seems that some semblance of calm and normalcy has returned to the Solomon Islands. And today we've um, seen reports that New Zealand has deployed 15 um, military and police personnel um, to the country. And this will then be followed by a much larger group of 50 over the weekend. Um, the New Zealand security forces will work with the Solomon's police as part of the Australia-led mission to restore peace to the country. And this latest involvement by New Zealand is also, again, 
like in the case of the Australian troops, at the request of the Solomon Islands government. Uh, so with this local as well as foreign troops presence, um, I think it's likely that the situation will remain stable for now, or at least will not spiral out of control, at least um, not in the foreseeable future. What happens next? What kind of forecast are you hearing from analysts and your sources about this situation? Well, in the longer term, um, really, it's hard to tell because um, the many problems that um, beset the country are not likely to go away anytime soon. They're not likely to miraculously disappear anytime soon um, because um, most of the experts um, agree that the US-China geopolitical rivalry or the geopolitical situation was merely a trigger and they do not constitute the entire picture. And that is um, the multiple problems in Solomon Islands, which is um, poor governance, corruption, the lack of economic development, and long-standing local grievances, such as um, the over-exploitation of the country's resources, um, especially as forests and timber by overseas businesses, which of course also includes um, Chinese businesses. And also many locals are angry with the hardship um, suffered during the ongoing uh, COVID pandemic. They're also angry over the increase of businesses um, owned by ethnic Chinese that has driven much of the economic inequalities that they see. And what makes it worse really is that these grievances have not appeared to have been acted upon by the authorities. So while much of the local anger that we see right now has been suppressed for now. Um, I fear that this might just be a ticking time bomb that is just waiting to go off in the future when the conditions are once again right. Maria, it sounds like very much a watch and see situation. And we will, of course, watch your coverage on SEMP.com as it goes up. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And once again, many thanks to Chad Bray, who was so much fun to work with here in the podcast studios in Times Square. He's on his way to London. And I dare say you'll be hearing more from him soon as he gets acclimatised and acquainted with the locals over there. In the meantime, of course, you can follow all our updates from the Political Economy team on Twitter, at SCMP Economy. And of course, the latest Rob Delaney, Maria Siao, and all our team providing 24-7 news and analysis at scmp.com. I'm on Twitter as well if you care to throw any bouquets or brickbats. Have a great weekend. Speak to you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course. And I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.